Great to be with you once again. Um, if you have a Bible with you, go with me to Second Chronicles 34. We'll read it in just a few moments. Um, let me, whilst you're turning there, um, tell you a little story just to set us up for it. Um, this is about my younger sister. Now, um, I haven't, full disclosure, haven't got permission to tell this story, okay? But I sort of feel, as an older brother, I have tacit permission to embarrass my siblings at any point. Um, also, she lives far enough away that I'm not in any immediate danger, so that's good. Um, but she is what I would describe as a verbal chameleon. Um, verbal chameleon. Now, what does that mean? Well, most of you, I'm pretty sure, will know what a chameleon is. Chameleons are those lizards that change colour depending on their environment. So you put a chameleon in a, a red box, it'll turn red. You put it in a green box, it'll turn green, yellow box, yellow, etc. Right? Amazing. Work of God's creation. Fantastic. My sister is a verbal chameleon. By that, what I mean is, if you put her in a room of people with a different accent... You know, she will adopt that accent pretty much immediately. Anyone here in the room know one of those people? Yes? Anyone sitting near one of those people, right? Don't look at them, okay? It's, uh, it, nonetheless, we all know who you are, right? And we know when you're doing it. Um, so we would often go on holiday whenever we were kids, and there would sometimes be like a, a youth group. And with, with the package kind of holidays that you would have went on back in the day, you'd have found there was different flights going out for the same sort of two-week or one-week period from different parts of the UK. And so the majority of people there would be English. And uh, very quickly, like literally the first day, my sister would be going around introducing herself as, Hi, I'm Sophie. I'm from Northern Ireland. You know, how are you? Your shoes are darling. And it's just like, I'm surprised you didn't get a monocle and a top hat out, you know, just to really rub it in. And of course, as her older brother, at this point, I'm like, well, this is a, a treasure trove of opportunities to make fun of you. You know, very hard to not sort of dig, dig something in there. And uh, she would sort of, you know, go past and go, oh, that's my brother, Jamie. And this is literally how she would do it, right? And everything within me was, like, just desperate to go, well, howdy, partner, yeehaw, good to meet you. I am Jamie. I'm from Northern Ireland, too. Uh, didn't do it, though, didn't do it. Uh, but we did make lots of fun of her. She does, however, and this is the good thing, her accent does, when you take her out of that environment, go back to normal, to a relatively normal Northern Irish accent. So she currently lives in Australia, and... Uh, Start of a FaceTime conversation, she'll be like, G'day, mate, how are you? You know, like that will be that. But by the end of it, she's removed the hat with the corks and, you know, is talking in a Northern Irish accent once again. She does come back to normal, fortunately. And I want to talk today about bringing the church back to normal. That is, um, I want to talk about revival. I'm here um, this week and next week, I'll be speaking with you guys. And I want to do a two-week sort of mini-series on revival. And I'm talking about bringing the church back to normal. Now, why do I say back to normal? Because we think of revival as some unusual, powerful, you know, outside of the normal, extraordinary period. Um, but what does normal mean? Well, normal in the technical sense, which is what I want to talk about, is the expected standard. And normal is like what it should be. It's not just necessarily the average. It's not just you know, what we would typically see. It's actually what we would expect. And God's normal for his church, God's normal for his people, is a lot better than the average of what we see. We might think that today's a, 
an average church service or above average, like, you know, this is a great church service compared to the average of many, perhaps. But nonetheless, God's expected standard, God's normal for his church is vastly beyond what we typically see even here. And what we see in the scripture over and over again is God sets out his normal, his expected standard for his people. And over time, his people drift and they go away from that and they they drop below what God expects, what God desires from them. And in those moments, God moves, God acts, and God brings them back to his normal. And that is what we would typically call a revival. I don't know if God calls it that, but we would call it that. It is this profound move of God where everything suddenly begins to look Actually, from God's perspective, as it should look in his church. So if we want to see what the normal for church is, we've got to get a little bit outside of perhaps, you know, 2021. We've got to be a little bit more 30 AD, right? We've got to be a little bit less ported on, a wee bit more Pentecost. Come on, somebody give me an amen for, you know, being a bit Pentecostal, right? We've got to have that. And uh, so, so the title of this message, I don't know if I give it at the first service, I'll give it this one, is The Coming Ulster Revival. Because I believe, I genuinely do, and it's been growing in my heart, and I'm not just blowing smoke. I genuinely believe we might be on the verge of a profound revival in this province. I genuinely do. Thank you. Yes, I genuinely believe that God may show up in power, signs, wonders, radical salvations, his presence showing up in church like we've never seen. He, He might be on the verge of doing that. We might be on the verge of seeing that. Now, why is that? I'm going to read our passage for us, and then I'll tell you why. So uh, 2 Chronicles 34, ideally if I had time I'd read the whole chapter, but it's a long chapter. So I'm going to take out just a few verses that kind of link together um, to give us the overview of what happens here. So verses 1 to 4 say the following. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And walked in the ways of David his father, and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of Baals in his presence. And they basically talks about them dismantling the idols. And then from that place, what they go on to do is reopen the temple that had been boarded up by the previous regime. Uh, and so they open it up and they conduct these repairs on the temple. And in that, they find these long lost scrolls that haven't been read for generations that turn out to be the law of God, the Old Testament law. And it says this, verse 18 to 19. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah, sorry, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words um, from the, of the law, he tore his clothes. Then it goes on to, to say what the king did after that. He tore his clothes. He has this moment of hearing what God wants for his church. So he goes and he speaks to the prophets, asks for advice, conducts major reforms among the people. And it sort of culminates... Actually, it culminates in the next chapter, but in this chapter, we get a nice sort of quick summary of the direction. Uh, Verse 31 to 33, it says this. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. 
And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Um, this is, in my opinion, and probably objectively, I mean, you, might, you could make arguments for others, but in my opinion, this is the greatest revival in the entirety of the Old Testament. This is the greatest move of God. And why do I say that? Well, if you just read the number of alls in verses 31 to 33 there, all the people worship all, you know, worship with all their heart, all their soul. They take all the commandments of God seriously. They get rid of all the idols in all the land for all of Josiah's life. Like that, that's what happens. There's this profound, genuinely nation-altering, nation-shattering in a good way uh, move of God that transforms everything. It's an absolutely profound revival that goes from the bottom of society to the top and everything in between and affects every area, the economy, religious environment, the the political environment, the whole thing gets turned upside down almost overnight, it would seem. Like this is in perhaps a number of years, but there's a key few weeks even in the middle of it where it's like, boom, God showed up. It's profound, profound revival. And yet the context of it, if we were to read around this more, is that Israel starts this place, Josiah starts his reign in the darkest and worst time in the history of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. It is deeply, deeply broken at this point. The two previous kings, Manasseh and Amon, are the worst kings in that kingdom's history. They, they, they set up idols in the temple and then they board up the temple and they only have idolatry outside of it. They get rid of the prophets. They, they sacrifice their own children literally to these idols that they're worshipping. And they, they are in this horrifically dark place. There is like, we are under the judgment of God. And yet in that moment, it's in that place, we see that over and over again in scripture, that God goes, I'm going to show up and transform literally everything almost overnight. It is a profound revival. And I believe we may be on, a brink, on the brink of a revival because if we look at our society and we look at the church and we look at where things are at, do you know what? There is no external sign of it whatsoever. Like we would say that we are in a bad place spiritually compared to the rest of the history of Northern Ireland, compared to the the history of the church in this province. I think we are in a dangerous, seriously concerning place. Uh, In Northern Ireland, the number of those, I'll give you some stats here, the number of those who uh, identify as non-religious is up 300% in basically a decade, or basically 300% in a decade, from 7% to 20% since 2011. Non-religious, if, if you don't take Protestantism as a one denomination, if you look at sort of Presby's and, and Methodists and whatever, um, non-religious would be the second largest denomination in the province after Roman Catholic. Um, what you would find uh, as well is that the number of confessing evangelicals regularly attending church is down 20% uh, from 1998 until 2017. And of course, most of you are aware that COVID has has impacted that further. So uh, basically a third of practicing, that is church attending Christians, um, uh, have not attended church online or in person really of any sort uh, during COVID, not with any sense of regularity. They've basically dropped off. 
A further third have church hopped, which means you probably tuned in to other churches regularly. Like if you tuned into Elevation, you're not in sin. Okay, that's fine. But nonetheless, there's a sense in which only a third of uh, congregants, church members, have regularly and, and only committed to their home church throughout this p- period. And you would think that sort of the whole online thing, that's going to reach younger people. Actually, it turns out that millennials and down, millennials and Gen Z, are less likely, 50% less likely than baby boomers to turn in or to tune in to church online. They don't have that commitment. They don't have that background of years of faithfulness. And so you take it away for a year and, hey, the interest is gone. And so we are in a dangerous, dangerous place. If, if I could sort of summarize the Northern Irish Church and where it's at right now, I think we could say Northern Irish churches are getting fewer, smaller, older, less influential, and less committed. Serious concern. You know, in the real world, that's where we're at. And, and if we took a sort of health check, I think we could say there's issues with a lack of leadership in, in the Northern Irish Church at the minute. We've seen a lot of great leaders for various reasons go different places or retire or step down, lots of things like that. We've got a lot of lukewarmth, and if I'm honest, a lot of theological liberalism. That's the state of the Northern Irish Church. Cheery way to start your Sunday morning. But nonetheless, here's the thing. Biblically, what that means is this is an excellent time for a root move of God. This is an excellent time for a revival. We should be expecting God to show up and do something. Because what we see with Josiah's example is actually what we see repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament and throughout Scripture. Is that things are bad and then God moves. So, So Israel is in slavery for 400 years and God sends Moses and delivers them. You know, we see in the book of Judges, one generation forgot God and so God sends a judge, God sends a prophet, God sends a ruler to come and bring them out of it. Samuel comes at the end of a period when the the priesthood is totally corrupt and people have forgotten the word of God and are rejecting him. You know, Hezekiah, another great reformer, he comes after the whole nation turns to the worship of Molech. And of course, Jesus comes after 400 years of silence during which Israel has lost their nation and it's been given to the Romans. That's the situation and it's in that place that God seems to move. And so if God can do that in, the, in this way with this group of people, can he not do it for his church today? Is God not still able to do this? I, I think we should absolutely expect this because do you know what? God has actually given us promises about the future of the church. He has said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right now, it looks like the gates of hell are prevailing. So what does that mean? That means at some point, I don't know if it's in this generation or the next generation, but at some point, God will send a revival. Because it's the only way for the church to prevail. That's it. It's what we need. God has said that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world and then the end will come. This gospel of the kingdom is not being successfully preached in this province right now. And the only way to get there is a revival. So so I think that a believing people, a a, a God uh, trusting people will be saying, do you know what, things may look bad, but I am expecting a move of God in this nation. Revival from, from an earthly perspective is always a surprise, right? Maybe what you generally find is there's maybe a remnant, a small handful of people who are believing, praying, fasting, going for it. But, but on a sort of sociological, you know, macro scale, if you asked someone who knew what they were talking about, about the state of religion in the nation, they'd go, 
it's done. Like it's over. There'll be no more Christianity by the end of the next generation. You know, that, that, that would be the context in which pretty much every revival seems to show up. I'd analogize it this way. Revival is less like giving birth and more like a proposal. Okay, giving birth, right, those of you who have had kids, uh, you know that whenever your, your wife gets pregnant, or if you, you are the wife in this case, if you get pregnant, you find out pretty accurately the time of the arrival of the baby, you know, within a couple of weeks, okay? It's not necessarily a surprise. Now, word to the wise here, gentlemen, act surprised, okay, if a woman tells you she's pregnant, okay, act surprised, oh, I had no idea, okay, even if you see a baby coming out, act surprised nonetheless, okay, but uh, revival is not like that, revival is more like a, a proposal, and let me, let me tell you my sort of proposal story, because a proposal is supposed to be a surprise for everybody apart from the one making the proposal, so I was very successful in surprising my wife with our proposal. Uh, for, we, got, we got engaged um, Boxing Day 2009. Uh, first, first surprise, uh, first way of surprising my wife was I had absolutely no money. Right, So that really threw her off the scent. And that wasn't a tactic. Okay, I just was skint. Um, so she was not expecting a proposal at that time. I took her on a nice drive. We went up the, the coastal route. Uh, up from sort of Larne round to the north coast. And my plan was to get engaged at White Park Bay. White Park Bay is a beautiful beach up there. Many of you will probably know it. And uh, it was a beautiful day. It was crisp and clear, but it was also very cold. And as you went up higher, it was quite icy and treacherous. Um, but we managed to sort of get to White Park Bay. Um, White Park Bay, for those of you that know it, you approach it from high up. So we were approaching it from the ice and then there's a car park about halfway down a hill, and then you've got to walk the rest of the way down to the beach. And I thought, look, by the time we sort of get down to the car park, it'll not be as icy down there, okay? Which was a mistake, okay? That was, in hindsight, an error on my part. We got down to the car park, and it's basically an ice rink. Like, you could, it was like a flat sheet of ice across the whole thing, could not, you know, stand on it, could not walk on it. And I thought, well, at least we've parked the car. We'll try walking down the hill and see how that goes. Um, we get to sort of a couple of steps down the hill, and I realize we are not going to walk. Like, this is absolutely deadly. Okay, this is just like a sheer you know, sheet of ice across the whole thing. And I was like, I'm going to be proposing on one knee because I've shattered the other one. Okay, like that's the reality. A lot of people propose with like helicopters. We're just going to be getting an airlift, you know, back home. That's going to be the, the, how this ends. So I was like, right, well, let's go to another beach. However, I was driving a, either a 99, I can't remember if it was 99 or a 2000 Vauxhall Corsa, which those of you that have had a Corsa like that will know, this is not a suitable car for getting up an icy hill, okay? Not a great option. It had a nice big hole in the exhaust, so it sounded really loud and souped up, but it drove like a soup tin. And uh, it was not going to get up this hill. We were sitting there, and so at this point I knew, I've really surprised her. I've surprised myself, if I'm honest, at this point. This is, I was not expecting it to go like this. Fortunately, some farmers showed up, pushed us up the hill. We got on to the next beach, which is White Rocks, which has a car park at sea level, everybody, okay? And I asked my wife to marry me. Uh, I knew I'd surprise her because her first response was, are you serious? Uh, after which she then said, yes. So we're successfully married. Um, but a revival is more like that. That is, it is a surprising, sovereign move of God that most people do not respect, uh, expect to happen. It comes seemingly out of nowhere. 
That is a revival. That's the move of God. Duncan Campbell, who was the key um, speaker, preacher in the Hebridean revival of the late 40s, said that when the tide is furthest out, that is when it's about to turn. Uh, Another Welsh revivalist wrote this, Revival is God bending down to the embers of a fire that is just about to go out and breathing into it until it bursts again into flame. Do you know what? Revival is something that God does seemingly out of nowhere. And looking at where we're at, I'm expecting one. I can't give you the time, can't give you the date, but there's a feeling in the air in my heart, and I believe in other people, I'm hearing more and more people getting stirred up, that God may be on the move. God may be on the move. So what do we do, right? Because there's this sense in which, right, great, fantastic, we'd love a sovereign move of God, we'd love a revival. What is our responsibility? Like, is that just a nice message to cheer you up? Or do we have to do something? Um, Selwyn Hughes, who wrote a fantastic book on revival, talked about uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, running like two rails on a train track, side by side, and you can't really have one without the other. And revival in itself implies, even the very word implies, it starts in the church. Revival, bringing back to life, it implies that there was and is some sort of life there. That's, that's the implication. And so there's something that God will do. God will start with his people. And so what do we do? Well, it's not enough just to sort of be open and to wish, right? Leonard Ravenhill said this. He said, revival did not come to the Hebrides by wishing, We've got to do more than that. What do we do? Well, let's look at what Josiah did. It says here, In the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. First thing is this. We have to seek God. The people of God have to seek God. What I mean by this is genuine, heartfelt, urgent prayer, fasting, pursuing it in the spiritual going, do you know what, it's not enough for us just to hope and twiddle our thumbs. We have to pray. Church, we have to be a praying church. I think we can say this, that we can trace the origin of every revival back to the moment where people started to pray for revival. We see that over and over again. Floodwater takes a long time to arrive. But the crack in the dam, the point at which it's inevitable, is when people give themselves to praying and seeking God for the sake of themselves, for the sake of their nation. That's where we have to begin. We see in Josiah, it's not until 20 that he removes the idols. It's not until he's 26 that he rediscovers the law. But he starts to seek God. And I believe the move of God begins when he seeks God in the eighth year of his reign. That is when he's 16. Uh, the Methodist revival, I think, is, is incredibly encouraging for us as an example of this. Um, because like our nation, um, the... the um, the nation of England at that time, which was impacted by this profound revival in the 1700s, um, was in a serious state. Uh, Sir William Blackstone, a sociologist at the time, said that he went around every major church in London. So all the, the named churches, the ones that we would know in our day, just think of them and uh, put them, you know, the equivalent uh, in their day. He said he couldn't find a single sermon more in common with Christianity than the writings of Cicero which was the sort of Greek philosophy that was popular at the time. And the religion of the day had invaded the church. Church had abandoned its mission, its gospel, its call. And society was falling apart. Uh, drunkenness and gambling were, were rampant. Uh, one historian called England at the time just one vast casino. Uh, 97% of the infants born in the workhouses died in infancy. 97%. 
a horrific time. One of the main pastimes was going to watch public executions. Right? And of course, this was the height of the slave trade, which is an abomination uh, on the entirety of, of sort of uh, English and, and Western history. Terrible, terrible time in the nation. Bishop Berkeley, uh, bishop at the time, said that mis- uh, morality and religion had collapsed to a degree never known in any Christian country. This is the beginning of the 1700s. And so in 1730, three men, at least three that we know of, and, and some others with them, there's a wasp, um, began to pray. You know their names, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, and George Whitfield. And they begin to seek God, and they basically seek God for a decade. Pray, fast, consecrate themselves. They go out on missions, they have encounters with God. They don't see anything remarkable for a long time. Until about 1738, 1739, things really get into gear. And they begin to see, in, as they're preaching out in fields, because they get kicked out of all the churches, they begin to see that thousands of people are coming. And they're preaching to coal miners. And they talk about seeing these guys with blackened faces from being down in the mine. And just little lines of white as tears roll down their faces as they're transformed by the gospel as they, they preach to them. This begins an awakening both sides of the Atlantic. If we put it into today's, if we adjusted for population and put it into today's numbers, you'd have 8 million people converted under the ministry of John Wesley during his lifetime. Amazing. 250,000 miles on horseback. That's how far John Wesley uh, traveled. George Whitfield crossed the Atlantic 13 times by sailboat, which was a dangerous and long journey. And by the end of his life, 90% of the population of the American colonies, which it was at the time, had heard him preach live without a microphone. Genuinely amazing. Earth-shaking revival. When did it begin I, I, did it begin in 1738, 39, whenever, whenever the, the crowds came? I, I believe that it actually began in about 1730 when these men decided to pray. When they sought God and said, you know what, we need a move of God in our nation. Do you know what, I believe if we in this room, we have more than three people in this room today. I believe if we said, we need a move of God in our nation and devoted ourselves to it in prayer, in fasting, in consecration, in living out as God would have us live out and preach in the way they'd have us preach. Do you know what, I believe we would see a revival. I believe we would. It took three in their case. We have more than three. We could have a revival. We could commit ourselves, and I believe after a few years, whatever it might take, I believe we'd see the power of God pour out if the church said we are going to pray until we see it happen. I believe we could see it. We've got to pray. That's the first thing. He sought God. If we want to see a revival, we've got to seek God. Second one, I'll keep this relatively short, but it's this. We've also got to speak out. We're told of Josiah this. It says, in the twelfth year, so he begins seeking God in the eighth year of his reign. In the twelfth year of his reign, four years later, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, and the carved and metal images. Revival and the spiritual warfare that revival takes, it often commences in that place of prayer. It always commences in that place of prayer. It doesn't end there. It actually ends whenever we take a stand against the idols of the age. That's where it ends up. I think a lot of the time we have people who, 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 likes, who can say, Do you know what, I can, I can pray, like, like I, can, I can sacrifice that way. But I, I, like this idea of taking on 
the, the spiritual battle in the public square. Like that's, there's a price to pay for doing that. That's where there's persecution. That's where there's real challenge. That's where you end up you know, having rocks thrown at you. That's what these guys had happen to them. When they took on the idols of their age. How, how do we do that? I, I believe it's primarily through preaching. Um, the idols of our age are not you know, gold and silver and wood. Like we don't have statues. Not, not, not in most places. Maybe you sort of go to you know, a Buddhist you know, yoga place. Or whatever. But that's not the kind of common idol of our age. The common idols of our age are ideas, their ideologies, their thought processes, their things that people accept that take the place of God. And those are, the ideal, those are the idols of our age and the preaching of the modern church. If we want to see a revival, we actually have to speak out against them. We actually have to address those things. I, I would say this and say it thoughtfully, but I, but I think we need to say it. That much of the preaching in the modern church as I see it is it, it contains truth, but it misses the point. It can, t- it can be true things, but you can take bits of scripture, pull them out of context, and sort of knock all the edges off and misapply them and, and, and sort of put a, a Jesus stamp on everything that people already believe. We can just put a nice spiritual twist. We can add a little bit of Jesus to the ideology of the age. We can say, Do you know what? whatever you think, it's all true, it's all good, there's no issue there, and here's a Bible verse to back you up with it. And I think a lot of the preaching in our day is like that. Just as in the, in the day of the Methodists, the preaching of the day was, was the, the ideology of the time, and that's what you saw in the church. I think we see that. So much of the preaching today is just about, do you know what, you're great as you are, and be who you are, and Jesus, you know, absolutely, yes, he does love you as you are, but there's nothing there about him saying, hey, be born again, uh, be a new creation, be transformed. Be renewed. Turn from your sin. Like we don't see that in much of modern preaching. You go on to the most watched you know, sermons, most downloaded sermons. There's very little of that in our day. There just isn't much of it. And yet, that's not the preaching that brings a revival. It's not the preaching that brings a move of God. If you read in Acts, I've read, uh, I did a study on Acts and... Um, Every single sermon in the book of Acts, apart from one, directly addresses the sins of the average person listening. So in Jerusalem, it preaches, uh, you know, they preach about you crucified Jesus because they had had Jesus walking among them and they had rejected him. It calls out that sin by name. Uh, In Athens, it's, hey, you have all these idols and you don't worship the one true God. Talks about that sin. Sometimes there's messages given to the religious elites, and it says you're stiff-necked and you honor the prophets, but you don't actually honor them because you know you claim to, but you don't listen to what they say, and you'd have persecuted them uh, the way you're persecuting us. So much of that is 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 missing in our modern preaching context. And this is the preaching that brings revival. People were persecuted for giving the message that they gave. They they threw rocks at them. If you were a Methodist, stones thrown through windows, beaten up on the streets, bulls driven through the fields as they were preaching. Imagine someone came in with a bull at the back to disrupt the church service. That's what was happening. It absolutely was. And in our day, we've just turned away from that. We don't have the confidence in the power of God through his word. And yet they did, and, and we don't see what they did. In our day, I'd say we, we do a lot of you know, relationship evangelism, which, which I'm very for. You should, look, if you're a Christian here, 
you should be friends with non-Christians, love non-Christians, be in their lives, and you know, care for them genuinely. And, and that should be part of your life. But it should be relationship evangelism. If you care for someone and you believe in Christianity, this I've, honestly, this has happened every single service uh, since I've started preaching here, basically. Uh, every time I always knock my water off. Um, the, uh, we, have, we have a lack of evangelism in our relationship evangelism. We sort of call it relationship evangelism, but it's just having coffee and not saying anything about your faith. There should be actual evangelism. In, in, in the book of Acts, one preacher described it as not relationship evangelism, but riot evangelism. Show up, say something controversial, draw a crowd, preach the gospel to them, get out before you're murdered, and do it again next week. You know, that was a terrible marketing strategy unless God shows up. Unless the power of God is actually there to transform. It would not work, but the power of God does work because he honours his word. And he honours that boldness. He moves in it. One of the key words in the book of Acts, it's in there 13 times, is bold or boldness. And every single time it's talking about talking to people. It requires boldness to actually say the things that people need forgiven from. You know, like, like it's not just you need forgiven. In the book of Acts, it's you need forgiven from this. These are the issues that you need to deal with. These are the sins that you are committing. These are the, the things that you do that offends God. And God wants, you to, wants to forgive you for that. That's the preaching that brings revival. It takes absolutely zero boldness to stay silent on the issues of the day. It takes zero boldness to agree with the world on the issues of the day. And yet, we will see zero revival if that's what we do. And so, you know what, if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, um, that, that may challenge you. And I, I just want you to know, look, Jesus loves you. And I love you. And, and Christians, generally speaking, we're not perfect, but we try to love you and we try to love the world. We try to love those around us. And, uh, you know, Jesus, he, he absolutely loves you as you are. And he did die for your sin, but he didn't just die to like pat you on the back in your sin. He died to set you free from your sin. Whatever your sin is, you need forgiven for that sin. Like that's, that's the thing that you need forgiveness from. It's not just the forgiveness for other people's sins that you don't commit. You need forgiveness for your sin today. And Jesus loves you and offers that forgiveness to you. Revival preaching requires boldness. It requires us to stand up and say something. We've got to, we've got to seek God, but we've also got to speak out. Um, one, uh, John Wesley actually said this. He said, give me a hundred preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not whether they be clergy or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. If we want to see a revival, we've got to have boldness in our preaching. And we've got to have congregations, by the way. This is where, do you know what, not everyone's going to stand up every Sunday. There's got to be congregations who back that and go, Amen. There's got to be people who go, do you know what? There's a sacrifice for saying, I believe that and I agree with that. And we've got to have people who do that. That's where we see revival. I'm going to read one of my sort of just last favorite uh, revival accounts. Not because it necessarily ties in. It's just nice to end on a high. 
So I'll read that. Stir us up for the next week. Um, we'll be speaking next week as well uh, on, on this rough topic. Uh, here, this is a story about uh, the ministry of George Whitfield by uh, a guy who, who um, heard him preach and was transformed in one of his meetings. Um, he, uh, this, is, this is his account of that. Uh, and he was, he was getting worked on by God in advance of this. There's more to the story. I'm cutting it down a bit. But he, here's what he says. He says, Then on a sudden, in the morning, about eight or nine of the clock, that's how they spoke back in the day, um, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield preached at Hartford and Wethersfield yesterday and is to preach at Middletown this morning at ten of the clock. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home to my wife, telling her to make ready quickly and go to hear Mr. Whitfield preach at, at Middletown. Then I ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late. If you were late today, by the way, there's a little just nudge in for you. Okay, this guy was sprinting to get to church on time and dragging his wife with him. Just throw that out there. Um, he said, having my horse... I, with my wife, soon mounted the horse and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. Then when my horse got much out of breath, I would get down, put my wife on the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me except I bade her. Um, And so I would run until I was much out of breath and then mount my horse again. So he's hopping on and off the horse, basically. His wife is on the horse the whole time. He's getting off and on, letting the horse catch his breath, catching his own breath. Um, We improved every moment to get along as if we were fleeing for our lives all the while fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon. Amen. For we were 12 miles to ride, double in little more than an hour. And when we came within about half a mile or a mile of the road uh, on high land, I saw before me a cloud of fog arising. I first thought that it came from the great river, but as I came nearer the road, I heard the noise of horses' feet coming down the road. So there's the sound of like a stampede. And the cloud was a cloud of dust made by her horse's feet. I could see men and horses slipping uh, like a steady stream of horses and their riders, scarcely a horse more than its length behind another, all of a lather of foam and of sweat with their breath rolling out their nostrils every jump. Every horse seemed to go with all his might. They were speeding to carry his rider to hear news from heaven for the saving of souls. I found a vacancy between two horses to slip in mind. That is, they had traffic on the way to church, everyone. It was said to be about three or four thousand people assembled together. I turned and looked towards the great river and I saw the ferry boats running swift backward and forward, bringing over loads of people and the oars rowed nimble and quick. The land and the banks over the river looked black with people and horses all along the 12 miles. I saw no man at work in his field, but all seemed to be gone. Businesses shut down. People ran. People chased down the word of God. Then when I saw Mr. Whitfield come upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelical. A young, slim, slender youth before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted undaunted countenance. And my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he came along solemnized my mind and put me into a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God and a sweet, solemn solemnity sat upon his brow. And my hearing and preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. That was a move of God. That was a move of God. People running, not Christians, non-Christians chasing down to see God show up and move. I believe we need a revival. 
We absolutely need a revival. We need that kind of revival. What will it take? We've got to seek God. We've got to speak out. We've got to pursue it. Why don't we stand to our feet and bring the band back up at this point. Let me um, just give you one line from Leonard Ravenhill. He's written some of the best stuff out there on revival. He says this. He says, we don't have a revival because we are willing to live without it. We don't have a revival because we are willing to live without it. You know, a lot of the time in the church, I think we've been willing to sort of tick along in a mixture of our strength and God's strength and sort of, you know, enjoy a little bit of God's presence, but we haven't necessarily cried out and been desperate for a move of God. But if I look at where we're at, I look at the nation, I look at the church, I'm being challenged in my own heart more and more. And I want to put that challenge out there for us today, for us to go, we're not willing to live without it anymore. We're not willing to live without a move of God. We need it. We need it for for us. We need it for future generations. We need it for our church. We need it for the nation. We We need it for the world. We need a revival. If you're here today, as I said, I'm going to speak more next week. I'm going to talk about a little bit more of our sort of responsibility on that front and, and really a consecration. But if you're here today and you're going, you know what, I want that to be my heart, would you just stretch your hands out in front of you? And I'm going to stretch my hands out in front of me. Just as a sign of, of, of opening yourself and asking God for something and receiving something from him.